I think generally speaking, if you're a paramedic, wa- you're not going to be sat around idle for too long. I was walking home from, um, it's when I worked in Travel Lodge in Brighton. And it was, it must have been like February or something. Um, it was pitch black and I'm, I'm, riding, I'm riding my bike home and then I get to this corner where there's a church and there's a little car park. There's, there's like this 90-year-old woman, just like, she looked like, um, you know them wrestlers that blade the foreheads? <laughs> Not in the WWE anymore, but yes. She looked like uh, Nature Boy Ric Flair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Because she had like white hair that was like yeah, massive. It's always with, better if you're going to blade. It looks better in blonde hair. <clears throat> and she tripped on a curb, oh. smashed her head on a wall, and she's she's in shock and she's lying there. Uh, and I, I, myself, and then somebody else about my age, um, got to the scene at the same time. So I'm chatting to her, trying to get a name. I'm saying to the guy, right, 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 you get on the phone. I'm just going to sit with this woman. Mm. Um, I'm just like holding her hand and all that. Um, and then the guy on the phone, you know, nine and nine is asking him questions, and it's like, okay, how old's the woman? That's what I'm guessing. He got all bashful, like he didn't want to. He didn't want to insult her. He goes, "Ooh, I don't know. She could be. She could be forty. <laughs> it's like, dude, it's important information. She's she's old and frail. We don't know her age. Osteoporosis has probably set in. She may be. But you give her like a, a little cheeky wink at her, and, she's and she just, she uh, went, "Oh, you." Yeah, and she was fine after that. Yeah, give her enough uh, energy just to wander home. <laughs> Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history, focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... Ah, shall we? I'm I'm lubricated. I'm ready to go. It's gross. Oh no. I've squeezed into my leather chaps and I'm good <laughs> to tell you this tight story. And this particular story, it takes place in the Victorian era. And your three words, Southport, Lytham and St Anne's. Oh, this is going local. It's local history, sir. Oh God, we've isolated... So just for the rest of the country. <laughs> for interest, both myself and Jack were born in Southport and my wife was born in Lytham St Anne's because we've now run them together. So, October the 9th, 1886. It is a dark and stormy night Northern on the northwest coast. Everyone was sleeping. They weren't because a gale force wind was whipping the sea into a foaming frenzy. <sighs> Or is this me doing sound effects again? No, it's a wild and woolly night, though. That's what you need to know. Okay. However, in spite of the cold and dismal conditions, the well-to-do people of Southport were having a good time because they were attending the annual... The annual? The annual mayoral ball at the opulent Cambridge Hall on Lord Street. Right, so Lord Street was based... Oh, no, the Champs-Élysées in France was based on Lord Street. Is that not a true fact? The other way around. Lord Street was based on the Champs-Élysées. No, it's the other way around. Is it all the way around? No, it isn't. Surely not. No, that, no honestly. Okay, so... I, I know that as fact. Unverified Jack fact. Oh, like you're, all yours is gospel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
Verified Jack fact, verified by Jack. The Champs-Élysées is based on Lord Street, which is the main road in Southport on the northwest coast of England. Thanks. Please check it. And if it's right, I will apologise. You can buy me a pastry. I will buy you a pastry. So... Give it to somebody else. More deserving. You won't know where the Cambridge Hall is, but for context, over a century later, this building will be called the Southport Arts Centre and contained within it a club called Flavour that was mercifully lenient in regards to its ID policy for any particularly short, youthful-looking college students. (laughs) This might be too topical. This might be too local. I'm, I'm worried that if people don't know anything about Southport, they might not get this. No, I, I, I assume they read between the lines and I used to go to this club. Oh, right, okay. As an underage drinker. No, I understood all that. Yeah. But you're right. We need to get back to the story. I'm so going to lean into it. Back to the night of October the 9th, 1886. Suddenly... The merriment of the posh people of Southport was interrupted by the unmistakable sound of a gun being fired. But not just any gun. A cap gun. No, this was the lifeboat gun, which let the communities right around the Ribble Estuary know that yet another unfortunate ship had fallen victim to the treacherous sandbanks. It was likely to be a matter of life and death, and time was of the essence. So this is a good point for us to stop, uh, because before we can continue the story, we need to... Wake everybody up. (laughs) We need, I think, to learn a little bit about the history of the Ribble Estuary. Do we? We do. Okay. And our story really begins, if we're going to talk about the Ribble Estuary... Wait a sec. Substory. Our, st- our sub-story begins approximately 10,000 years ago, just around the time that the last Ice Age was ending. So, the area that now forms the Ribble Estuary uh, had been an inland valley up until that time, but it was rapidly flooded by the rising seawaters caused by the warming climate. Damn climate change. Um, the mud that was being washed in by the rising sea was matched, though, by the silt that was being uh, washed downstream by the swollen rivers. Uh, and it resulted in the formation of miles, miles of mud flats and sandbanks. So, the estuary goes on for a bloody long way. It's, it is just a huge expanse of barely submerged mud flats. Uh, the landscape of the newly formed estuary proved to be really good for fishing, and the salt marshes that grew up around the sandbanks were excellent grazing for sheep and cattle. So it was no wonder that humans have been inhabiting the area for exactly the same amount of time that it has actually existed in its current form. So humans have been living around the Ribble Estuary in one form or another for 10,000 years. We know this. So as the silt was floating down. Yeah, so were humans. And we know it because Mesolithic tools have been found on both sides of the estuary. So this is Stone Age tools. Uh, Bronze Age settlements have also been found... And the estuary and the river were known as key routes for Viking raiders making their way inland from the northwest coast. Because the the Ribble uh, represented the northern border of Mercia at the time. Oh my god. One of the the old kingdoms of England. Um, It made it a good point to launch attacks. 
Uh, it's also worth noting that two of the largest Viking hordes ever found in England were found on the banks of the River Ribble. So, you know, if you're ever considering going um, metal detecting around the Ribble, wouldn't be a bad place to go. Right, okay. Okay. Uh, but eventually, of course, the Viking raiders withdrew uh, to the Isle of Man because they liked it there. The first permanent settlement <laughs> soon followed, and Lytham was founded in medieval times on the northern point of the estuary. It stood pretty much alone for nearly 500 years until Southport was founded in 1792, starting life, as we both know, as a literal wooden shack for bathers to get changed in. The first building of Southport was literally a wooden shack. Changing rooms. Yeah, it was a changing rooms. And finally, in 1875, the town of St Anne's was created just north of Lytham. Uh, It was the overspill for for the people who weren't posh enough to live in Lytham. Right. Because it's, you know, royal. They become the service centre. Yeah. You You need somewhere to send the servants after work. But while the people of these coastal towns benefited from the estuary for fishing, farming, and, of course... Merriment. Well, the emerging tourist industry, yes. That's exactly what Southport was. Good old William Sutton and his idea to allow people to change and keep their dignity. Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. Um, it was a nightmare for commercial shipping. Captains who were unfamiliar with the area could easily run their ships aground on one of the many sandbanks, only barely submerged by the high tide. The biggest of these banks were all locally given individual names, such as... It wasn't a guessing game, but I see you're poised to give it a go. Do I know these names? Possibly. You should do as a sand grounder. Formby. That's a town. What am I asking? The sandbanks. What the sandbanks called? Yeah. On the Ribble? Estuary, yes. Preston? Again, that's a city. I don't know what you want from me. Okay, so, individual names such as... Sandy 2. That's closer. Salthouse Bank. Fowlnays. Ted's Bank. Horsebank, and my personal favourite... Oh, fuck off. <laughs> I <laughs> my, never would have got that. No sand grounder knows those names. My personal favourite, Angry Brow. <laughs> I've been to Angry Brow. Have you? Yeah. It's a sandbank. You can go there. But you can. It's moved a bit since, since these days. Uh, the estuary was exposed to storms and riddled with channels that would direct the tidal waters at up to four knots in random directions. It was also frequently foggy. All in all, a place to be avoided in anything that you might describe as a ship. So, you know, anything that had a draft above a couple of inches could right. easily become stuck. Hover- um, Is this the invention of the hoverboard? Uh, well, unfortunately, no. It's got nothing to do with the hovercraft. Okay. And also, unfortunately, for, for captains the world over, a tiny little settlement called Liverpool had set up a little dock on the River Mersey just south of the Ribble in 1715. And the expansion from Thomas Steer's original dock was almost exponential, and only 150 years later, approximately 40% of all global trade passed through Liverpool. Fucking hell. I know. In 100 years? 40%. 150 years it took them to go from being the first little dock in Liverpool to being 40% of global trade was going through there. So, 
like it or not, ships often found themselves having to skirt the Ribble estuary on their way in and out of Liverpool. Frequently, in weather that could be described as choppy. I was, I was going for less than ideal, but yes, choppy would be another way, or inclement would be another word. Uh, and it brings us nicely back to our story. I'm not, I'm not playing that. Okay, so, as I said before, it was a dark and stormy night. And all through the house. And a loud bang had just cut through the gale force winds. People, peering through the flurries of snow, because it was also snowing, uh, were just about able to make out the outline of a 484-ton, three-masted ship called the Mexico. It had left Liverpool five days before with a cargo, and it was bound for Ecuador in South America. For some reason, it had been unable to get out of the Irish Sea due to the weather. So oh, it's it, just bobbing round. It was not having a good time, was the Mexico. That's 30 miles. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the evening of the 9th of October, at about 9pm, the captain of the Mexico, Captain Burmeister, he realised that the situation was beyond his control, and he ordered that distress signals be sent out. The ship struck horse bank, nearly exactly between Lytham and Southport, so right dead centre in the estuary, uh, about 10pm. Now, all the crew of the Mexico could do at this point was to lash themselves into the rigging and hope to be rescued. And every second was going to count. But we need to take another break uh, and pause to talk about what help might have been available to, to the stranded crew of the Mexico at this point. Is this where we talk about Squarespace? <laughs> have we got sponsors? We do not have sponsors. Me undies. You can't just go selling your own things. Okay. Um, have you considered water? Hydrate your body with water. water. It comes from a tap. Mm, yum. <laughs> now, our, our paws... So we can talk My about... paws are clear since I've been using water. <laughs> For washing. Washing mm, water. Yeah. It comes from the tap. <laughs> so, the first lifeboat station in the area was situated at Formby, actually, and the second at Southport. Both of these were funded by the Liverpool Dock Trust to try and reduce the amount of cargo being lost. This sporadic funding started in 1812, although there were a few gaps in service over the years. So there was a service there, but it wasn't anything particularly um, organised. It was a bit ad hoc. By 1850, though, the number of ships becoming stranded on the sandbars was getting far too big for one part-time lifeboat crew to handle. Uh, And also, rewards for salvage were going begging because if you were able to save uh, a boat, uh, shore it up and actually get it into dock, you'll be given a little little kickback for your trouble. You'd hope. Mm. And also, lives were being lost. So uh, the good people of Lytham set up a local appeal uh, to create their own lifeboat service because they wanted to be able to start helping too. And it was to be manned by volunteers from the local fishing boats. So people who knew all of the channels, all of the sandbars very well. And had tiny boats that could manoeuvre them. Well, no, they wanted their own special lifeboat. And by mid-1851, they had raised the funds and agreed to the purchase of their first lifeboat. A brand new and state-of-the-art beaching lifeboat. 
no less. Which, considering you're trying to avoid hitting sandbars, beaching is not the best name for the lifeboat, but we'll go with it. Uh, it had been designed by um, James Beaching for a competition, and the reason it won is because it had demonstrated that it could self-right if capsized. A version of the boat was displayed at the Great Exhibition in London that year as well. Wow. This is one of the things Do that... Do they still use this sort of lifeboat now? No, we are no, so I don't, far I don't, advanced. No, I don't mean that. Just the lifeboats... Lifeboats self- will still self-right, right. yeah. That idea was great. Not everyone was a fan of the self-writing concept, and one of the local history books that I read um, described one of the older fishermen saying that he would much prefer a lifeboat that didn't need to self-write in the first place. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's all very well and good. I'd rather have one that doesn't capsize, lads. I won't be getting on that. Yeah, everyone always there's always someone who has a problem with it, with innovation. Well, the new Lytham lifeboat arrived in December 1851 and was christened the Clifton. However, there followed uh, an unusual period of calm through the rest of that winter. And obviously in summer, weather is more favourable. So they hadn't actually gone out on an honest-to-goodness call all the way through to October the following year. And on Friday, October the 1st, 1852, the crew, getting a bit bored, decided to launch to do some practice exercises. And they did so under second coxswain John Davies. So coxswain is basically the captain of the lifeboat. So second coxswain is vice captain of the lifeboat. Uh, John wanted to see what his new boat could do. It's probably the first time he'd been in charge of it. Will it fly? Yeah, well, he tried to make it because he set the sail and began running it along at full speed. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to see exactly what this new boat could do. Unfortunately, at this point, a squall blew up, almost immediately capsizing the Clifton. Doesn't matter. Well, five out of the ten men aboard were immediately lost in the choppy sea, and as no one had thought it necessary to bring the life jackets on this trip, after all, it was only a training trip, all five drowned. (laughs) The remaining five couldn't get the boat to self-right, as the decision had been taken sometime in the preceding year to cut open the essential watertight compartments to make room for more gear, such as the life jackets that they hadn't bothered to bring. So the elements of the boat that made it able to self-right had been compromised by the the crew not really understanding how the ship worked. Fearful of being swept away, the five remaining crew got underneath the boat to shelter from the storm and await rescue. So they're just in that little air pocket? Under the boat, five of them, knowing that there were five other friends just gripping onto, who'd gone. Yeah, the rigging. After some time, the coxswain decided the only chance they had was for him to brave the storm and right the boat before they succumbed to hypothermia one by one because it was a bloody cold sea, as you can imagine, October in Southport. Gotcha. He heroically left the underside of the boat to try and save his remaining crew. And... His body was found 19 days later, washed up on the coast. Ecuador. (laughs) Yeah, he made it further than the Mexico. Of the four final men under the boat, two lost consciousness in the freezing water and drowned before the rescuers could reach them. And as a final cruel blow, it turned out that the two survivors were the only men out of the 10-man crew who did not have wives and children at home to support. 
So the only two people who survived this disaster were single, whereas the other eight who died all had wives and children. You know this thing about um, survivors' mm. guilt? Yeah. Because a lot of people are talking about it at the moment because you know, all the houses that got um, destroyed in bushfires and, mm. and there's all these people experiencing that, like, why didn't I die? Mm. It must be such a horrible experience for these people to be rescued and to to know that yeah. you're you're going to have to go back and explain what happened to these families. Well, unbowed, the local community raised funds to support the widows and orphans, and a new crew was ready and willing to yeah, take the lifeboat out. As well. Yeah, they took the lifeboat out again nine days later. Oh, even before they'd found second Coxie. Second Coxswain had not... He was 10 days away from being discovered. So they had, what, seven dead friends and one missing. And they went out again uh, to make their first big rescue, though. A brig called the Warrior of Dragida. The crew of the Warrior had already abandoned the ship. So they didn't actually save any people. But by saving the ship and sailing it safely into port, the Lytham crew each received £5 bonus from the owner's of the warrior, who were quite happy it hadn't sunk without a trace. Was it even a bonus? That's the only pay for doing that? Oh, no, you get a call-out pay. Oh, do you? Is that is that true now? Yeah. I think it is now, because even if you go out and it turns out to be a false alarm, you've still had to put yourself at risk. No, but if you're part of the lifeboat volunteers, are you being paid for any of it? Oh, I don't know how it works. This was pre-Royal um, National Lifeboat Association, yeah. so... Um, Royal National Lifeboat Institute, isn't it? RNLI. Um, so, over the next few years, the Lytham boat would develop a reputation for heroism. They were on their third boat in 1874 when the new town of St Anne's was founded up the road. This upstart town created its own lifeboat station in 1881 and suddenly it turned out that there were not enough shipwrecks to go around for the three competing stations. Because now you've got Southport you've got Lytham and you've got St Anne's all going out to each call out sometimes. In the 1880s, the crews would frequently be seen racing each other to try and reach the stricken ship first. Lytham had the furthest to travel to reach the sandbanks, but they made up for this by often enlisting a tugboat to drag them part of the way in order to try and make up ground. It's like wacky races. Yeah. Things reached ahead in January 1888. It is a bit like the wacky races, though. Yeah, I'm just seeing all these these weird ships, all their own like gimmicks. Yeah, well, the Southport crew, to be fair to them, they had um, a cart. So what they would do is they would get the boat out onto the sands, and they would get horses to drag the boat as close along the sands as they could before they launched, rather than launching from Southport. All oh, right. So yeah, they all had their own gimmick and way of way of trying to get there quicker. So things reached ahead in January 1888 when the Lytham and St Anne's lifeboats actually crashed into each other in an effort to reach the Alfred William. The bemused crew of the William had to watch on as the two lifeboat crews had a blazing row about who was in the wrong and who had caused the accident. So you can imagine, like, oh, this is this is brilliant. There's, there's two boats coming to us. We're, we're bound we're to be... Oh, oh, crap. What's happened there? They're throwing punches. They're throwing punches. Guys, I hate to, I hate to bother here. you. I'm wet. <laughs> I'd like, I'd like to be dry, please. 
Southport comes in. <laughs> Makes the steal. Yeah. yeah. The Lytham and St. Anne crews look around, suddenly there's no one on the boat anymore. I'm like, what the... Oh! But anyway, enough merriment. Back to December 9th, 1886. So the Lytham boat got away first, about 10pm. The St. Anne's crew set off at 10.25pm, but had less distance to travel. Um, so that would hopefully make up some of the ground. And the Southport crew were the last to go, but they dragged their boat along the sand on a carriage for three and a half miles in order to try and catch up with the other two crews. They only launched at 11pm into the water. The Lytham boat was a brand new and bigger model than the other two, having only been delivered to the station the previous month, though the upgrade had resulted in the death of a crew member. John Parkinson because he had injured his thumb loading the old boat onto a railway carriage and this had resulted in him developing typhoid fever from which he did not recover oh Christ yeah from a thumb injury yeah he he crushed his thumb as they were loading it because one of the sort of things slipped and he just landed on him and the old boat the last act of the old boat was to kill one of its crew it was not happy to be loaded up because it probably knew it was going to the old uh, so like bacteria you get from cockles. Yeah, well, it, it was going to the old dock in the sky and it was not happy about that. They arrived, the Lytham crew, at the Mexico in the new boat at around 12.45am with neither the St. Anne's or the Southport lifeboats in sight. So they made it first. Obviously, being the biggest and the first to set off had given them enough of an advantage to win the latest of the friendly races because they weren't friendly a lot of the crews knew each other it was you know they, they'd be angry in the moment but they were all friends they were able to retrieve the entire crew and pushed off to begin heading for shore and they only lost four of their oars in this process so it was, it was quite a choppy seas is what I'm saying how many oars do you have well they I believe had eight pairs of oars so they lost half of their oars Eight pairs of oars would be 16. Okay, so they lost a quarter of their oars. Math. Quick maths. Quick maths. The Lytham crew actually saw the St. Anne's and Southport boats arriving at the wreck, but they were already out of sight when the Southport boat was hit by a rogue wave and it capsized. Tragically, the Southport crew had been in the process of setting anchor at the time, and instead of self-writing, as it was designed to do, the boat was held upside down by the weight of the anchor. Oh, God. Now, if, if the anchor hadn't been had been cut free, it would have self-righted. And if the anchor had had enough um, let off on it that it hit the seabed, some slack would have built up and it would have self-righted. They'd managed to hit the terrible sweet spot where the anchor was about 12 foot below the boat. So it was deep enough to act to stop the boat self-writing, but it was nowhere near the, the seabed at that time. So there was there was no way that they could self-write it. All the crew would could do was to try and cling to the upturned boat as it was slowly pushed back towards Southport Beach. Near the shore, John Jackson and Henry Robinson decided to abandon the boat and swim for land in the hopes that if they made it there, they could try and get some help. They both made it, but was so exhausted that it took them until about 2am to raise the alarm. They swam back... In the shallows, they decided that they would swim back to try and get help for the rest of the men clinging to the boat. It was... Yeah. 
In woolen bloody jumpers. Yeah, and cork life life jackets. Search parties assembled to look for the boat, but it wasn't hard to find. They followed a trail of dead bodies boat. Oh. <laughs> to the Southport lifeboat, finding it at about 3am, with three lifeless bodies still clinging to it. They did eventually find three more living crew members, but these men all died shortly afterwards, and overall, 14 of the 16-man crew had died. Meanwhile, the St. Anne's boat had still not returned. It was eventually found at 1pm on December the 10th, close to the Palace Hotel in Birkdale. Dead sailors still sheltering under her, and more bodies were found along the beach. None of the 13 crew in the St. Anne's boat had survived. The Mexico disaster remains the worst in the history of the lifeboat service. 27 men had died, leaving 16 widows and 50 orphan children. I didn't realise how treacherous Southport Beach is Mm. in that estuary. It's insanely treacherous because it looks so calm most of the time. Yeah. And even to this day, what's the main call out for lifeboats? It's people going out for a walk getting getting caught caught on these self-same sandbanks turning around and realizing that there's no way they're getting back well i I don't want to like join on with my story Mm. because i didn't drown or nothing like that but when you when you're on that beach we used to me and my friends would go skimboarding which is like you know surfing where you you throw it along the thing and then try Mm. and catch a wave or whatever and you'd follow the Mm. the tide out yeah and then it'd stop, and you and you don't see the tide come back in because it it goes through channels, cuts around the back of you. You're still stood on a sandbank with your, mm. you know, all your gear and that. And then you turn around, and there's you're suddenly on an island. Yeah, there's a hundred meters of water behind you in front of you, mm. and, and now you've got to swim back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it gets a bit scary. And this is this is to this day what still kills people on the estuary is people going, oh, I could walk across. And, it, it, you know, it's completely flat. And there are times when you can see a clear sand path across the way. And aside from the sinking sand, which we all know is there, it's the fact that if you don't time it right and start walking as the tide's going out, which people who don't understand about it never will, they'll wait until it's fully out, that's way too late to start your journey because it's going to come back through. Yeah. So the men were laid out in the stables of the Palace Hotel for public viewing. And the hotel is now... Is that to identify them? Uh, yes. And also because of the Victorian sort of morbid curiosity thing. Yeah, they did like all that, didn't they? The hotel is now, and is still, COVID permitting, a pub called the Fisherman's Rest, which was named in honour of the Brave crews. I'm sure you've been past yeah, the Fisherman's yeah, yeah. Rest. So that is where they all ended up. Queen Victoria herself... They all have mugs, don't they? Yeah. For, for each of the... Are you about to say this? No, no, no. But it's a nice little addition. They have like uh, tankards for the names. For the guys. Yeah, yeah. Queen Victoria herself wrote about the terrible tragedy in her diary on December the 11th and the crews were posthumously awarded medals from the RNLI. The surviving Lytham crew received a reward from the German Kaiser and the French sent medals of honour um, to, to sort of honour what they'd done in terms of bravery. A fund was set up for the widows and orphans with Victoria, the Kaiser and the port of Hamburg where the ship was registered uh, and the RNLI as well, making 
sizable donations and within weeks it had amassed over £30,000. And I know what you're going to ask me. You're going to ask me, what's that today? Oh no, I've stopped doing that. I've actually, I've, I've actually gone to the no, effort no, Peter, of finding out. I've had feedback saying people don't like that. Okay, can I at least tell you, it, it took me at least two minutes to figure this out. Well, if you must, but this is okay. the last one. So it's the equivalent today of nearly four million pounds. Fucking hell. In a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, the Mexico itself, the port of Hamburg, the people who owned it, they decided they wanted to sell it and they sold it for 45 pounds or just shy of six grand today. So for less than the cost of a second-hand car, a decent second-hand car, to a man called William Alsop, who was from Preston, and he gave people guided tours. Of the shipwreck. Well, it was, they'd managed to salvage it. It was just a guided tour of the ship that had you know, caused the greatest lifeboat disaster that's ever been. Uh, he was having as many as 1,000 visitors a day at one point because, as we've said, the Victorians, they love a bit of... Yeah, morbid curiosity. So much so that if you didn't, you felt it was too tacky to actually walk around the ship and do that kind of thing, the touristy thing. You could buy postcards with photographs of the faces of dead crew members. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, so I, I like. I sort of resent Britain's Got Talent, and mm. but it's it. I suppose it's better entertainment. What, then, it's more wholesome. Where did you go? I went to Southport. Look, here's a picture of lots of dead sand grounders. Ooh. Yeah. They were in a pub, you know. It's not the best, is it? But this, again... I got to poke one with a stick. <laughs> this is the Victorian era. Only half a guinea. The two decimated stations recruited new volunteers and commissioned new lifeboats. The Lytham boat also received a new coxswain following the disaster... A man by the name of Thomas Rimmer, who is a direct ancestor of our very own Emma Heathcote. Really? Yep. He was on the boat during the um, Mexico disaster. So he is one of the survivors. Wow. Why aren't you doing this with Emma? Because she knows the story. This is her family history. Right. I was put onto it because her family have researched this. Does Emma know? <laughs> she does now. Emma doesn't listen. But um, <laughs> that is the story of the greatest lifeboat disaster in our country's history, which just so happened to take place off the coast that we looked out on for our entire childhood. It was a good... I really enjoyed it. If you want to, you can go and see... Um, in there's a cemetery in Southport that has a uh, communal grave for the guys who died from the Southport crew. There are um, monuments in St Anne's to the people who died there, and I believe there is a, a sort of grave marker in a St Anne's cemetery. And just by the Lytham windmill, that was where the old lifeboat station was from Lytham, and they've turned that into a museum which commemorates and has some of the personal effects of the people um, who were serving in the various boats during the disaster. So if you ever want to check out a bit more of the local history, I urge you to go, Yeah, COVID permitting. There's also a, um, they're showing a remake of Godzilla at View. If you go before midday, 
Is that in Southport View? Yeah. Oh, good. So, you know... Make a day of it. Definitely. Well, I know. You might be tired. (laughs) You pick one or the other. Yeah. Godzilla's got too big, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Just in terms of size, not in terms of his influence. I think his influence is important today as much as it ever was as an expression of Japanese sort of devastation and fear at the nuclear age. You're just ragging on everyone. This I'm not. I'm saying that I think that Godzilla was the... You overrated? Know, n- no, not the original Godzilla. I'm saying the new Godzillas because they're taken so away from Dickens that message. Dickens is overrated. Dickens is overrated. Tolkien waffles. Tolkien does waffle. Godzilla. Godzilla has been corrupted. For his boots. No, Godzilla has been corrupted by a Western audience. He's moved away from his original purpose. It's an allegory for the devastation caused by nuclear bombs. Goodbye. <laughs> the human body can only accept 12 sausages for bleeding. <laughs> Jack. Thanks. <laughs>